When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. May the peace and welfare of the country be promoted by this result. But I see not the way as yet. In the case of Mr. Jefferson, there is nothing wonderful, but Mr. Burr's good fortune surpasses all ordinary rules and exceeds that of Bonaparte. All the old patriots, all the splendid talents, the long experience, both of Federalists and Anti-Federalists, must be subjected to the humiliation of seeing this dexterous gentleman rise like a balloon, filled with inflammable air, over their heads, and this is not the worst. What a discouragement to all virtuous exertion, and what an encouragement to party, intrigue, and corruption. What course is it we steer, and to what harbor are we bound? Say, men of wisdom and experience, for I am wholly at a loss. I believe we may consider the election as now decided. It is fortunate that some difference will be made between the two highest candidates. Because it is said, the Federalists here held a caucus and came to a resolution that in the event of their being equal, they would prevent an election which they could have done by dividing the House of Representatives. It is now, my dear sir, ascertained that Jefferson or Burr will be president, and it seems probable that they will come with equal votes to the House of Representatives. It is also circulated here that in this event, the Federalists in Congress, or some of them, talk of preferring Burr. I trust New England, at least, will not so far lose its head as to fall into this snare. There is no doubt but that upon every virtuous and prudent calculation, Jefferson is to be preferred. He is by far not so dangerous a man, and he has pretensions to character. As to Burr, there is nothing in his favour. If he can, he will certainly disturb our institutions to secure to himself permanent power, and with it, wealth. He is truly the Catiline of America. To Mr. Jefferson's administration, I wish prosperity and felicity, but the commencement of it is too strongly infected with the spirit of party to give much encouragement to men who are merely national. The conduct of the minority in the election, and that on the last vote, has been so universally condemned by the Federalists in all quarters, and during the crisis they were made generally so uneasy and anxious for the event, that when it happened it came as the thing of their strongest wish. I verily believe that week of unwise conduct has brought over more to us than two or three years of wise and consolating administration would have done. The great body of Federalists throughout the U.S. are by this means consolidated with us, and with a conciliatory conduct may be firmly cemented, and the party division be obliterated, so far as it had affected the people. Their late leaders can never come over but they are now left alone, and will fall into oblivion. If we must have an enemy at the head of the government, let it be one whom we can oppose, and for whom we are not responsible. John Adams. Thomas Jefferson. Alexander Hamilton. Dear listeners, I welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Nearly a year ago, we began our journey through the Adams presidency. In this episode, it comes to an end. For, as we concluded last time, with the choosing of electors in South Carolina, John Adams had lost the presidential election of 1800. However, those of you who are more familiar with presidential history know that's not the end of the story of this election. Before we get to that, I'd like to thank Sean Warswick of the American History Podcast, Gary Giroux of the French History Podcast, and Sam Hume of Pax Britannica for providing the intro quotes for this episode. I decided to pair them up with Adams, Jefferson, and Hamilton, respectively, to highlight the affinities which characterized each person's political viewpoints during the Federalist era. I greatly appreciate the support of fellow podcasters and friends in providing intro quotes, as well as sharing information about presidencies. If you'd like to know how you can help the podcast as we enter a new series, you can find more information on the website at presidencies.blueberry.com. 
That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Also on there, you can find sources used for each episode and episode guides in case you need to get caught up. As some of you know, I've launched a Vimeo channel, which allows me to add a visual component to special episodes and discuss presidential history in a non-chronological manner. That can be found at vimeo.com forward slash presidencies. You can get word of new episodes, presidential history trivia, and other assorted items of note if you connect through social media, where I can be found on Facebook as Presidencies, on Twitter as Presidencies89, and on Instagram as Presidencies Podcast, all one word. Information about and links to Sean, Gary, and Sam's podcast can be found on the Source Notes page for this episode, as well as on my social media. With all that said, let's get going. Though the domestic political scene seemed increasingly unstable in the latter part of 1800, U.S. foreign affairs seemed to be quieting down. The first news of the Convention of Mortfontaine had been printed in Baltimore on November 7, 1800 and the cloud of war that had menaced the United States for the past four years lifted without the anticipated downpour. This convention would prove to be one of numerous victories for the French consulate that year. As noted in episode 2.22, the Austrians had attacked the Cisalpine Republic, one of the French sister republics, i.e. basically a French puppet state, in April, and First Consul Napoleon Bonaparte went personally to take charge of the situation. Without going into too much detail, though it would be a narrow victory culminated by the Battle of Marengo on June 14th, French forces would succeed in driving the Austrians back out of Italy and into an armistice and renewed peace talks. However, historian Charles Estelle questions whether Napoleon really sought a peace with the Habsburg monarchy at this point. As he notes in his Napoleon's Wars and International History, quote, to make a lasting peace with Austria it would have been necessary to offer her a series of concessions that respected her interest as a great power. If Napoleon wanted peace, it was peace through victory rather than peace through compromise. Thus, not surprisingly, on November 22nd, the armistice ended and the Austrian forces attacked in Bavaria. Despite being caught by surprise, the French forces under General Jean-Victor Marie Moreau were able to attain a decisive victory on December 3rd at the village of Hohenlinden which caused the chastened Habsburgs to once again ask for peace. This time, they were forced to make serious concessions, including the recognition of the independence of the French sister republics, the destruction of fortresses on the right bank of the Rhine, and the relinquishing of the duchies of Modena and Tuscany. Once the terms were settled, the Treaty of Lunéville was signed on February 8, 1801, and the Habsburg monarchy withdrew from the Second Coalition. This did not mean, however, that all was well domestically for the First Consul. Our old friend C.S., despite his playing a key role in overthrowing the Directory Government for the Consulate in 1799, as discussed in episode 2.18, was already by 1800 plotting with the Minister of Police, Joseph Fouché, on how to overthrow Napoleon. They would not, however, be alone, and before the year was out, not one but two plots to assassinate the First Consul would be thwarted. These attempts would serve as a reminder that, though the consulate government was more stable than that of the Directory, France was not that far removed from the uncertainty of the Revolution, and that there were still elements, both in the halls of power and out in the nation, who threatened Napoleon's ambitions. Keeping this in mind as we move forward might help in understanding future moves made by the First Consul. However, just as there were plots against him, Napoleon was plotting against the interest of others, including the United States. The same day of the initial signing ceremony of the Convention of Mortfontaine, about 1,200 kilometers or 750 miles to the southeast, Louis-André Berthier signed the Third Treaty of San Ildefonso with Spanish representative Mariano Luis de Aquijo. Unlike the Convention of Mortfontaine, however, news would not spread fast about the treaty concluded at San Ildefonso, namely due to it being a secret treaty. However, its impact would be profound on American history once it was revealed, for in this treaty, Spain ceded control of the Louisiana Territory back to France in exchange for a kingdom in Italy for the son-in-law of Spanish King Carlos Cuatro. Though this would not come into play for the remaining time of the Adams administration, just know that the Convention of Mortfontaine would not resolve all the issues between France and the U.S., and the Third Treaty of San Ildefonso ensured that new issues would arise for the third president of the United States. 
But who would that be? Well, since it's not time to count the Electoral College ballots yet, let's take a moment to check in on other developments in the U.S. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Even before peace with France had been assured, the new army initially raised in the name of national defense had been demobilized. And with Alexander Hamilton's resigning his commission, General James Wilkinson, Yes, the treacherous former paid agent of the Spanish crown, James Wilkinson, ended up as commanding general of the U.S. Army once more. Now, at the time, his treachery was not well known. Indeed, the surveyor Andrew Ellicott was still the one who had come closest to exposing Wilkinson. But, as discussed back in episode 2.15, Wilkinson had acted quickly to counter Ellicott. As noted by Wilkinson biographer Andrew Linkletter, quote, In 1800, no one had seen more of the United States, both geographically and socially, than Wilkinson. His extensive travels had made him familiar with life in New Orleans and Michigan and much in between. Young men with a taste for adventure were exhilarated by his theatrical style, and it showed not only in their devotion to him, but in the operatic phrasing they learned from him. This did not mean, however, that Wilkinson was completely off the hook. There was still the matter of Ellicott's previous communications with the federal government in which he had shared his suspicions. And Wilkinson would soon learn, after arriving in Washington and going into the War Department records for himself, that Ellicott had not been the only one who had reported suspicions about him. With the focus on possible war with France and the changeover in leadership at the department, it seems that no one put two and two together. But surely, it could only be a matter of time, right? On the evening of November 8th, while Secretary of War Samuel Dexter was out of town, the War Department building containing the records, and which the Federal Gazette noted later, had been, quote, locked for two weeks, caught fire. All records within were destroyed. With hindsight, we can look back and throw our suspicions at Wilkinson. But at the time, there were only a few people anywhere who suspected him of being anything other than an honorable gentleman with a lengthy service history in the U.S. military. That didn't mean, however, that there weren't suspicions of foul play. At the time, however, the main suspect in the court of public opinion was Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott Jr., who was the first to arrive on the scene. As Linkletter notes, though, Walcott, quote, had nothing to gain from the blaze. He did potentially have more to gain, however, from a fire that would take place a couple of months later. But let's stick a pin in that for the moment, as we return our focus to John and Abigail Adams. The Adams family would enter one of the darkest times in its history to that point in December. On or around December 3rd, news arrived at the president's house that Charles Adams had died from what was pronounced as dropsy, but historians generally agree was likely cirrhosis of the liver due to his heavy drinking. As Abigail wrote to her sister Mary a few days later, quote, his constitution was so shaken that his disease was rapid and through the last period of his life, dreadfully painful and distressing. He bore with patience and submission his sufferings and heard the prayers for him with composure. His mind at times was much deranged through his sufferings and through a total want of rest. He finally expired without a groan on Sunday week. The news of their son's demise was devastating to Abigail, but also, despite his estrangement from Charles, to John as well. It would be a couple of weeks before the president wrote to his youngest son, Thomas, lamenting that, quote, the melancholy decease of your brother is an affliction of a more serious nature to this family than any other. Oh, that I had died for him if that would have relieved him from his faults as well as his disease. 
Before they could come to terms with their grief, however, more bad news arrived at the Adams's door. The Electoral College cast its ballots on December 3rd, and though the ballots were not due to be open and counted before the full Congress by the President of the Senate, i.e. Vice President Thomas Jefferson, until February 11th, through word traveling via correspondence across the nation, it soon became clear that Adams had lost his bid for re-election. Thomas Adams in Philadelphia had already learned of his father's loss by December 14th and wrote to him that, quote, you are to be relieved from the cares, the high responsibilities, and the vexations of guiding the helm of state. Such is the will of the sovereign people's representatives. Be it so. You will carry with you into retirement the gratitude of many, the regret of some, and I confidently trust the veneration of all your countrymen, whether friends or foes. This is a reward beyond the reach of intrigue or caprice, and were it the only inheritance left to your family, they might esteem themselves rich in possessing this. Though one can imagine John feeling some relief at such kind words from his son, there was still some regret and pain lingering at being turned out of office after only one term. He replied to Thomas that, quote, My little bark has been overset in a squall of thunder and lightning and hail attended with a strong smell of sulfur. Nothing remains for me but to indulge that vanity which I have found out lately is considered as the predominant feature of my character. That last bit likely an allusion to criticism of him from Hamilton and others in the newspapers. However, he told Thomas, quote, Be not concerned for me. I feel my shoulders relieved from a burden. The short remainder of my days will be the happiest of my life. For my children, I consider my retirement as a favor. They will now have fair play. They never had an equal chance with their comrades and never would have had if I had continued in office. President Adams was not immune to the charges of nepotism in his son John Quincy's appointment to various diplomatic posts both in the Washington administration and in his own. Though he had initially tried to promote his son-in-law, William Smith, to a generalship in the new army, as discussed in episode 2.20, he made note of the rebuff of that attempt and thereafter avoided any undue favoritism for Smith. With Adams out of office, the younger generation of the Adams family would be able to pursue careers in public service without being accused of having had positions arranged for them by John. A bright spot at this point was the arrival of William R. Davey, as of late Peace Commissioner to France in Washington, D.C. Davy would bring not only the official word of the Convention of Mortfontaine, but also Oliver Ellsworth's resignation as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. No one could have known at the time just how impactful the latter would be on American history, or how, in some ways, Adams's decision of a replacement for Ellsworth would be the greatest legacy of his presidency. To fill this vacancy, Adams had one name in mind and wrote to him on December 19th, asserting that, quote, in the future administration of our country, the firmest security we can have against the effects of visionary schemes or fluctuating theories will be in a solid judiciary, and nothing will cheer the hopes of the best men so much as your acceptance of this appointment. You have now a great opportunity to render a most signal service to your country. I therefore pray you most earnestly to consider of it seriously and accept it. For those of you who have read ahead and are thinking, well, as we know, Marshall did accept the post. I'm sorry to tell you that this letter did not go to John Marshall. Instead, it went to the governor of New York and former chief justice of the Supreme Court, John Jay. That's right. John Marshall was not Adams's first choice for the seat on the court. Even at the time, though, as news started circulating that Adams had offered the position to Jay, it seems that there was little confidence that he would accept it. Robert Troop remarked in a letter at the time that Jay's, quote, fixed determination was to devote the remainder of his life to retirement. Former Secretary of State Timothy Pickering used the opportunity to mock Adams, writing that, quote, it is deeply to be regretted that the president will so often sport in serious things. Was the offer to Jay meant merely as a formality, while Adams really had Marshall or someone else in mind? If so, he apparently didn't tell Marshall, as the Secretary of State wrote to Charles Coatsworth Pinckney on the same day that Adams nominated Jay, that he felt, should Jay decline the nomination, Adams would choose Associate Justice William Cushing, the senior judge on the court, to take up the position of Chief Justice. 
As for Marshall, his plans, as conveyed to Pinckney, were to, quote, return to Richmond on the 3rd of March, 1801, to recommence practice as a lawyer. If my present wish can succeed so far as represents myself, I shall never again fill any political station whatsoever. Go ahead and stick a pin in that one as well, will you, dear listener? We've currently got Marshall and another fire on the back burner. Sounds like the perfect time to talk about another cabinet shuffle. That's right, we're not finishing up the Adams administration without another change in the cabinet. Though his colleagues in the cabinet may have been planning to stick it out until the last day of the administration, Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott Jr. decided to leave his position early. On December 31, 1800, Walcott would vacate the post, quote, with only a few hundred dollars and a small farm in Connecticut to his name. Though I've had trouble finding the details on exactly when he made his plans known, which may be related to that second fire that I mentioned, it does seem that they were known by early December because Samuel Dexter wrote to Adams on December 3rd, asserting that, quote, You once honored me by asking my opinion as to a Secretary of War. Mr. Payne of Vermont would make a very able and attentive one, or anything else, except a dancing master. That quote, dear friends, is one of many reasons why I wish we knew more about Samuel Dexter. Anyway, it does seem like Walcott's resignation didn't come as a complete shock, and Adams would ultimately reward Walcott with an appointment on February 18, 1801, as a judge on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Walcott, by the end of 1800, had served as Secretary of the Treasury for a month and two days shy of six years, still as of 2019, one of the more lengthy tenures at the Post. As described by Ronald White, Walcott, quote, was a capable Secretary of the Treasury, but on matters of fiscal policy, he depended almost entirely on Hamilton. By degrees, he was drawn into the factional disputes between the Adams and Hamiltonian wings of the Federalist Party, and as an ardent admirer of Hamilton, he occupied a very anomalous position in Adams's cabinet. As described by a later commentator, George Gibbs, Walcott, quote, had not, it is true, the brilliant qualities of genius, but he had a comprehensive and well-regulated mind, a judgment matured and reliable, strong, practical, good sense, and native shrewdness. He had no desire to obtain a shining reputation and little ambition other than to fill honorably an honorable station. This did not mean, however, as we've seen, that he didn't use his position to carry out an agenda. It is a testament to Walcott's political acumen that, despite his being Hamilton's protege and hand-picked successor, he remained in the cabinet until he chose to leave, while Pickering and McHenry, who both had fewer ties to Hamilton, had been forced out in part because they had been in league with the first Treasury Secretary. At this point, on January 1st, there were still 62 days left in Adams's term. The volume of work at the Treasury Department wouldn't allow it to go without a head for that time. Thus, Adams named Secretary of War Dexter as the acting Treasury Secretary. Adams would make it official by sending in Dexter's name to the Senate on December 24th for confirmation, and the Senate would, in turn, confirm Dexter on the 31st. However, Despite his comical recommendation of Mr. Payne of Vermont, Adams wrote to Dexter on January 2nd that he expected him to continue on as Secretary of War in addition to his responsibilities at the Treasury Department for the time being. Despite the reality that their time was limited, there was still important work to be done in the Adams administration. The main focus of the Adams administration in terms of official functions in its latter days would be the ratification of the Convention of Mortfontaine. Adams sent it on to the Senate for approval on December 16th, but unlike some of his nominations in the final days of his term, ratification of the convention would prove to be more of a challenge due to the high Federalist. Representative Harrison Gray Otis of Massachusetts would call it, quote, another chapter in the Book of Humiliation, while that prominent Federalist leader in the Essex Junto, former Representative Fisher Ames, would quip about the convention that, quote, We are by treaty to embrace France, and Frenchmen will swarm in our porridge pots. In arguments that at times mirror those of Democratic Republicans to the Jay Treaty, the High Federalists saw the Convention of Mortfontaine, or indeed any peaceful resolution to the conflict with France, as being a capitulation rather than a diplomatic victory. Secretary of State Marshall would work over the next month to try to convince Arch-Federalists in the Senate 
but his work would be impeded by the politics of the moment, which focused around the presidential election. So just what had happened in the presidential election? In a demonstration of just how little understood the system was, in all but one ballot, the electors cast their votes in lockstep with the party ticket. Thus, all Democratic-Republican electors cast a ballot for Jefferson and a ballot for Burr, while all Federalist electors cast a ballot for Adams. Then, except for one stray ballot for John Jay, they all cast their second ballot for Charles Coatsworth Pinckney. This meant that Jefferson and Burr each ended up with 73 votes, while Adams had 65, Pinckney had 64, and Jay, of course, had one. While they may not have understood how the Electoral College worked exactly, it does seem that politicos of the time quickly realized what the result meant. As there was no one candidate who had attained a majority of the vote, according to the Constitution, it would fall to the House of Representatives to settle the matter. But wait, you say, everyone knew that Jefferson was intended to be the Democratic-Republican presidential candidate and that Burr was the intended VP candidate, right? Well, that's true. But the fact of the matter was that the ballots did not specify. It was a common pool that the votes were cast into. So either R was technically eligible to become president. Complicating matters was that the House had a Federalist majority. No matter, the state delegations had to cast one unified vote per state. And the winning candidate just needed the vote of nine of the 16 state delegations to win. That should be easy. Democratic Republicans had a majority of the delegation in eight states, one short of the majority. This should be settled quickly once the official vote was counted on January 11th, right? Right? Well, as described by James Roger Sharp in his book on the 1800 election, it must be remembered that the politicians who had filtered into Washington, D.C. for the beginning of the congressional session were experiencing a, quote, scarcity of housing and lack of other amenities. Thus, they, quote, found themselves in a kind of unrelieved pressure cooker atmosphere in which politics was the be-all and end-all of their lives without the diversions that might be found in a larger, more mature city. As a result, every rumor, no matter how fanciful, seems to have been exaggerated, magnified, distorted, and then often accepted as fact. Sounds like the perfect conditions for our first constitutional crisis. Not everyone saw the danger at first, though. Jefferson wrote to Burr on December 15th, congratulating him, quote, on the issue of this contest, because it, i.e. the vice presidency, is more honorable and doubtless more grateful to you than any station within the competence of the chief magistrate, and lamenting that, because of his election to that post, quote, I feel most sensibly the loss we sustain of your aid in our new administration. It leaves a chasm in my arrangements, which cannot be adequately filled up. Despite their being from the same party, the letter makes clear that Jefferson envisioned that Burr would play no role in his administration, as had been the precedent for first Adams, then Jefferson, when they had assumed that role. At this point, though, it should be noted that Jefferson felt that a vote or two for Burr had been thrown away to ensure that he was the top vote-getter. By the time the letter reached Burr in New York, the reality of the tie vote was becoming clear, and Burr wrote that, in that circumstance, quote, My personal friends are perfectly informed of my wishes on the subject and can never think of diverting a single vote from you. On the contrary, they will be found among your most zealous adherents. I see no reason to doubt of you having at least nine states if the business shall come before the House of Representatives. He even went so far as to offer up that, quote, I will cheerfully abandon the office of VP if it shall be thought that I can be more useful in any active station. In the opinion of Burr biographer Milton Lomask, while it was not clear just how sincere Burr was, quote, it is plain that Jefferson was not. He was not interested in giving Burr an active station in the government, only in wringing from him an avowal of disinterest in the presidency. Not having been frank with the colonel, i.e. Burr, it probably never occurred to the Virginian that the colonel could be frank with him. Jefferson never so much as acknowledged Burr's letter offering to give up the vice presidency for some lesser post. 
By the time Jefferson saw this offer, the tie was no longer a matter of guesswork. It was known to exist. Jefferson and other Democratic-Republican leaders miscalculated about a couple of factors in their initial assessment of the situation. First, Federalists realized that they had lost. Not only was the presidency out of their grasp, but the new Congress would have a Democratic-Republican majority in the House, with that party winning 67 out of 106 seats in the recent election. Federalists were in a bad position, and they knew it. Former Secretary of War James McHenry wrote to his outgoing colleague Oliver Walcott about the lack of political organization by the Federalists, asserting that, quote, they write private letters to each other, but do nothing to give a proper direction to the public mind. As noted by Ron Chernow, quote, the Federalists issued appeals to the electorate, but did not try to mobilize a broad-based popular movement. Thus, many leaders in the faction assessed the situation and realized that the choice before the House of Representatives was their last opportunity for the foreseeable future to influence the course of public affairs. If even His Excellency George Washington hadn't been able to bring Jefferson to heel, what hope could anyone else have? Burr, on the other hand, perhaps he was one with whom they could reason. Thus, Representative Robert Goodloe Harper, Federalist from South Carolina, wrote to Burr just after the tie was confirmed, urging him that, though there was pressure on him to, quote, yield your pretensions in the presidential contest to the Democratic-Republican's favorite, he should, quote, take no step whatever by which the choice of the House of Representatives can be impeded or embarrassed. Harper suggested that he, quote, keep the game perfectly in his hand. The other miscalculation made by Jefferson was in Burr's ambition. According to Sharp, Burr had been embarrassed in the 1796 election when he was supposed to be Jefferson's running mate, but instead, the Virginia electors threw their votes to Samuel Adams and George Clinton, while all cast their second ballots for Jefferson in lockstep. In his running mate's home state, Burr had only earned one vote and had run a distant fourth in the overall presidential contest that year. Treasury Secretary Walcott, around the time, quoted a Virginian as saying that, quote, I have watched the movements of Mr. Burr with attention and have discovered traits of character which sooner or later will give us much trouble. He has an unequal talent for attaching men to his views and forming combinations of which he is always the center. He is determined to play a first part. He acts strenuously with us in public, but it is remarkable that in all private conversations, he more frequently agrees with us in principle than in the mode of giving them effect. Still, Burr had managed with his work in the New York elections to ingratiate himself enough to win the spot as Jefferson's running mate again in 1800. One does have to wonder what the same Virginian said when events started playing out as the old year gave way to the new year of 1801. The Adamses would host the first New Year's Day reception at the President's House in Washington and thus would start a tradition that would long outlive them. As noted by William Seale, quote, Republican victory notwithstanding, the president continued the social forms Washington had established. In a black velvet suit, he stood near the Stuart portrait. Soon after, he would receive a letter that, even if he hadn't planned for it to begin with, likely didn't come as a big surprise. John Jay wrote to President Adams that, quote, I left the bench perfectly convinced that under a system so defective, it would not obtain the energy, weight, and dignity which are essential to its affording due support to the national government, nor acquire the public confidence and respect which, as a last resort of the justice of the nation, it should possess. Hence, I am induced to doubt both the propriety and expediency of my returning to the bench under the present system especially as it would give some countenance to the neglect and indifference with which the opinions and remonstrances of the judges on this important subject have been treated. Marshall biographer Gene Edward Smith concluded that, quote, there is no evidence that Adams had planned to name Marshall or that he had calculated the move beforehand. Instead, the available information suggests that the pace of events forced the choice. Marshall recounted later in his life that, quote, When I waited on the president with Mr. Jay's letter declining the appointment, he said thoughtfully, who shall I nominate now? I replied that I could not tell. 
After a moment's hesitation, he said, I believe I must nominate you. To Smith's point, quote, Adams simply could not afford to delay naming a new chief justice if the Federalists were to retain control of the court. Marshall was at hand, he was prepared to accept the post, and his personal loyalty to the president had been demonstrated time and again over the past year. Like Adams himself, Marshall was alienated both from the high Federalists on the national level and Virginians who were increasingly trending Democratic-Republican. If not for his being named as Chief Justice, it is very possible that John Marshall would be just as little remembered in the annals of history as Charles Lee or Oliver Walcott. Fortunately for him, on January 20, 1801, Adams nominated the 45-year-old Marshall as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Before Marshall could discharge his duties at state, however, there was another problem that arose. The high Federalists in the Senate, already sore about the election losses and the impending power shift, came out in opposition to the convention of Mort Fontaine. Though Adams and Marshall had little influence to use to sway them, they did still try to convince them to ratify the convention, but to no avail. When it came up for a vote on January 23rd, it was rejected by a vote of 16 for to 14 against, falling short of the required two-thirds majority and with all of the votes against being Federalist. As noted by Gene Edward Smith, quote, to the discomfiture of Federalist senators, the convention of Mort Fontaine was extremely popular throughout the country, not only among Jefferson supporters, but also with the business community, which wanted the quasi-war to end so that trade could be restored with France. Luckily, Marshall had an ace up his sleeve. A letter had arrived from U.S. Minister to Britain Rufus King in which he shared a conversation with the British Foreign Secretary Lord Grenville about the convention, with King reporting that, quote, Lord Grenville had not manifested any marks of disappointment or discontent concerning the convention. Even the British, who generally objected to any deals that the U.S. made with the French, had nothing bad to say about the convention. So what was the high Federalist problem? besides having a chip on their shoulder. High Federalists would also use the opportunity to delay Marshall's confirmation as Chief Justice, and they would urge Adams to withdraw Marshall's nomination and instead nominate Associate Justice William Patterson, the second most senior judge on the court, to the post. Nothing doing, though. He may not have any influence on the High Federalists, but neither did they have any pull with Adams. Despite Marshall's lack of judicial experience, he would bring to the court his extensive, quote, legislative and executive experience. Marshall's legal skills were also superb. His analytical mind and his pragmatic bent had made him one of Adams' most trusted colleagues, and his personal integrity was unchallenged. There was also no one, save perhaps Madison, who could equal Marshall's understanding of the Constitution the High Federalists would finally give in on both issues. On January 27th, the Senate unanimously confirmed John Marshall as the fourth Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Then, on February 3rd, by a vote of 22 to 9, they ratified the convention of Mort Fontaine. Adams's legacy with both acts was secure. As the days left for the Adams administration grew shorter, one of the president's greatest supporters made plans for an early exit. Abigail Adams had suffered some minor bouts of ill health through the winter and put off the journey back home due to reports that the roads were, quote, so intolerable bad. But by February, she readied herself to return to Quincy and await her husband in retirement. She wrote to her sister, Mary Cranch, that, quote, I have no disposition to seclude myself from society because I've met with unkind or ungrateful returns from some. I would strive to act my part well and retire with that dignity which is unconscious of doing or wishing ill to any. With a temper disposed to forgive injuries, as I would hope myself to be forgiven, if any I have committed, I wish for the preservation of the government and a wise administration of it. In the best situation, with the wisest head and firmest heart, it will be surrounded with perplexities, dangers, and troubles that are little conceived of by those into whose hands it is like to fall. She hosted a final dinner for, quote, the judges and many others with the heads of departments and ladies on February 7th. Then, in the early morning on Friday, February 13th, Abigail, 
with her granddaughter and their personal servants, departed from the president's house. They would have one final visitor to see them off, though. Vice President Jefferson came to bid them farewell, an act that Abigail's biographer, Lynn Withy, described as, quote, a gesture of friendship that was unexpected and very touching to her, i.e. Abigail. Two days before she left, though, one of the greatest periods of uncertainty since the ratification of the Constitution had begun. Despite a heavy snowstorm hitting the city that day, the members of Congress managed to make their way to the Capitol building by noon to witness Jefferson counting the electoral ballots and confirming what everyone already knew, that he and Burr were tied at 73 electoral votes. Now, what isn't often reported is that there was an issue with the ballots from Georgia. As James Roger Sharp notes in his book on the election, the four votes for Jefferson and four votes for Burr from that state had not been properly certified, and as such, could conceivably have been thrown out. Had that happened, neither Jefferson nor Burr would have attained the 70 votes needed to have a majority of the votes, and all five candidates who had received electoral votes would have gone to the House for them to choose the next president. Sharp speculates that this may have been Charles Coatsworth Pinckney's best shot at becoming president. As it was, though, Jefferson counted the votes from Virginia without issue, and the House adjourned to its chamber to hold its first vote on who should be president. At 1 p.m., the first ballot found the eight Democratic-Republican-led state delegations voting for Jefferson, while the six Federalist-led state delegations voted for Burr and Maryland and Vermont were unable to cast a vote as their delegations were evenly split between the two parties. Thus, with no victor, the House went on to the second ballot, and the third, and the fourth. They continued on with ballots every hour through the night until finally, after the 27th ballot at 8 a.m. the next morning, the House agreed to adjourn until noon. The sober reality was beginning to dawn on the members of the House. In 20 days, when the time came for John Adams to leave the presidency, there may not be anyone to succeed him. Meanwhile, all of this was happening in an atmosphere of heightened tensions for, as I mentioned earlier, there was another fire. On January 20th, the Treasury Department had caught fire. One of those who assembled to fight the blaze was none other than John Adams himself. As described in a newspaper account, quote, the fire for some time threatened the most destructive effects, but through the exertions of the citizens, animated by the example of the President of the United States, who on this occasion fell into the ranks and aided in passing the buckets, was at length subdued. Before the embers had cooled, partisans were already pointing fingers at one another. Federalists had been saying that the radicals in the opposition were dangerous for years, you know while the Democratic Republicans felt that the outgoing autocrats, quote, had been motivated by a desire to destroy official documents that revealed years of corruption and lies. As Samuel Dexter was serving as Treasury Secretary as well as War Secretary, he came under the most personal scrutiny for the two fires. But speculation about James Wilkinson aside, fires were not an uncommon occurrence at a time where fireplaces and candles were in common use. This reality would not stop the tongues from wagging, and for some, it pointed to the danger inherent in the other side winning the election in the House. As the political debate went on, when he wasn't fighting fires, President Adams still had work to do, and the Senate added to that work in mid-February by passing the Judiciary Act of 1801, which doubled the number of circuit courts and created 23 new judgeships. This act was the culmination of Adams's efforts to push for reforms in the judiciary, but due to the timing of its passage, it would be criticized by Democratic Republicans as an attempt to take advantage of the situation and get more Federalists into office in the third branch of government as they were set to lose power in the other two branches. The mythos that has developed over time is of Adams furiously rushing to fill judgeships the day prior to leaving office. But as noted by David McCullough, Adams set to work on making appointments as soon as he signed the Judiciary Act into law on February 13th, and most of the nominations were made on February 20th, with the last ones being sent over to the Senate on the 24th. McCullough also notes that, despite the vast majority of those appointed being Federalists, quote, most all of the nominees were perfectly good choices, and the Republicans opposed hardly any of them. There would be one last bit of nepotism in the appointments, however, 
as Adams nominated William Cranch, Abigail's nephew, to a seat on the circuit court of the District of Columbia. It's quite likely that we will come across Cranch again, for, in yet another appointment that would lead to a lengthy term of service, Cranch was still on the bench when, spoiler alert, the 14th president, Franklin Pierce, was inaugurated. But that's getting way ahead of ourselves. We still don't have a third president yet, so let's check in on the House to see what's happening there. The marathon session through the night of February 11th going into February 12th had taken its toll on the representatives. As described by a newspaper account, some members of the House were, quote, running with anxiety from the committee rooms with their nightcaps on. Representative Joseph Nicholson, Democratic-Republican from Maryland, was already suffering from ill health, but knowing that his vote was critical to keep the Maryland delegation from voting for Burr, had arranged for some friends to, quote, carry him the two miles from his lodgings to the Capitol through the snowstorm, and a bed was fixed for him in the committee room. Nicholson's wife would take his vote from the committee room to the clerk on the floor of the House with each ballot. When the House reconvened at noon and took the 28th ballot, it was clear that the few hours had made no difference as the vote was still eight for Jefferson, six for Burr, and two state delegations tied. Rather than go all night again, the House agreed to postpone the next ballot until the next day. Perhaps by then, with some reflection and possibly some backroom convincing, enough votes could be swung to bring the stalemate to a close. One of the central figures in the behind-the-scenes negotiations was Representative Samuel Smith of Maryland. This is not Smith's first appearance on the podcast. We last encountered him way back in episode 1.32 in the debate in the House over the appropriations to put Jay's treaty into effect. As then, though Smith was a Democratic-Republican, he was seen as someone with whom the Federalists could possibly work to move things along. Thus, Representative James A. Bayard, Federalist from Delaware, and the cousin of Margaret Bayard Smith, who we met last episode, and who will play a role in the story of the Jefferson administration, approached Representative Smith, offering an appointment in the administration if Smith would change his vote to Burr, and thus break the deadlock in the Maryland delegation. According to Smith's biographer Frank Castle, Smith asked if Burr had authorized Bayard to make this offer to him, and Bayard said that he had, though a later account from Bayard that, quote, Burr refused to cooperate with the Federalists in the House, contradicts this. Smith, meanwhile, was in talks with other Federalists, including Senator Jonathan Dayton of New Jersey and Representative Josiah Parker of Virginia. Rather than trying to convince him to help elect Burr, these two Federalists were interested in ending the deadlock by electing Jefferson if, of course, they could get some reassurances that Jefferson, quote, would hesitate to touch the debt, reduce the Navy, or act in an unfriendly manner toward commerce. Smith, who was staying in the same boarding house as Jefferson, was able to confirm all of these and even met again with Jefferson to get his take on the issues without mentioning his discussions with the Federalists. On Friday, February 13th, the same day that President Adams signed the Judiciary Act into law and that Abigail departed to return home to Quincy, the House of Representatives again assembled to take their 29th vote on who should be the next president. I'm sure you'll be shocked to know that there were eight votes for Jefferson, six votes for Burr, and two state delegations tied. If it ever had been, the joke was not funny anymore, and politicos grew ever more concerned about what would happen if the House was unable to break the deadlock. If Adams had to leave office without a successor being agreed upon to take the oath of office, it seemed that, according to a 1792 statute, without a president or vice president, because, of course, Jefferson's term would expire with Adams's, the president pro tempore of the Senate would be next in line, followed by the Speaker of the House. Now, at this point, a president pro tem was not automatically elected by the Senate, as is done today. Rather, someone was elected to the post when the vice president was unable to preside over the Senate. Thus, the Senate could either elect someone to that post to become president or the presidency could be assumed by the current Speaker of the House, our old friend Theodore Sedgwick of Massachusetts, the guy who had opposed pretty much everything Adams had done in office and had been part of the scheme to get Pinckney elected as president instead of Adams. Either way, a Federalist would be president if they could just keep the House deadlocked 
until March 4th. This idea had apparently been floating around in Federalist circles for some time, and likewise, Democratic Republicans have been thinking for a while about how to counter such a move. As early as December 19th, Jefferson had written to his friend James Madison about the possibility and Representative Albert Gallatin, the Democratic-Republican leader in the House, had drafted a memorandum which he shared with Jefferson and other party leaders in which he examined each possible scenario at length and made proposals on how the party should respond, including how they should resist should Federalists stonewall until the 4th and choose their own president. In states controlled by Federalists, he asserted that, quote, the minority must submit for a while because they are under actual coercion but that in states that the Democratic-Republicans controlled, quote, we shall run no risk of civil war by refusing to obey only those acts which may flow from the usurper as president. They would continue to obey acts of Congress and collect customs duties and pay taxes, but any executive orders, such as the calling up of militia, would be ignored. Though opposed by Gallatin, some Democratic-Republicans urged that a new presidential election be called for if the House was unable to resolve its deadlock. Gallatin feared that a new election would result in a, quote, reanimation of the hopes and exertions of the federal party in some states and despair of success on the part of the Republicans. And with the continued delay in resolution and inherent tensions of party animosity involved in electioneering, a new election might see instead a, quote, disillusion of the Union. As the debate went on, and an end to the crisis seemed as elusive as ever, as four more ballots were taken with the same result, one opposition leader decided to take matters into his own hands. Thus, on Saturday, February 14th, Vice President Thomas Jefferson arrived at the front door of the President's house. Now, it should be noted that we only have Jefferson's account of this meeting to draw from. As noted by McCullough, quote, Neither Adams nor his secretary, Billy Shaw, made note of a visit by Jefferson or said anything of such an exchange in later years. Considering their lengthy, close friendship and the fact that Jefferson had been socially involved with the Adamses quite recently, it's my opinion that we can trust Jefferson that such a meeting did take place. However, I don't know that we can trust that he got all of the details right. According to Jefferson, he called on President Adams to get him to intercede in order to prevent the Federalists in the House from carrying out their idea of stonewalling until March 4th and then electing their own president. Jefferson recounts that, quote, he, i.e. Adams, grew warm in an instant and said with a vehemence he had not used towards me before, sir, the event of the election is within your own power. You have only to say you will do justice to the public creditors, maintain the Navy, and not disturb those holding office, and the government will instantly be put into your hands. We know it is the wish of the people. It should be so. Jefferson went on to recount that his response to Adams was that, quote, I will not come into the government by capitulation. I will not enter on it, but in perfect freedom to follow the dictates of my own judgment. To which Adams supposedly said, quote, Then things must take their course. And thus ended the discussion. Jefferson noted that, quote, It was the first time in our lives we had ever parted with anything like dissatisfaction. Now, get your grains of salt ready, but I have a hard time believing that the conversation went exactly like this. First, it conveniently paints Jefferson as the pure leader who put the ideals of Republican government above party or personal ambitions, while Adams is put in the position of recommending that a bargain be made to secure the presidency. This narrative ignores what we now know in the historical record about Jefferson's conversations with Samuel Smith and Smith's discussions with Federalists about these very policies as part of a Jefferson presidency. Indeed, the day prior, Bayard of Delaware had approached Smith again and, like Dayton and Parker, was proposing that the deadlock be broken in Jefferson's favor if he could get some reassurances that Jefferson wouldn't turn out all of the Federalist officeholders and would continue policies that would favor commerce, retain the Navy, and continue existing policies regarding the public debt. Was Adams aware of these discussions when he met with Jefferson that Saturday? It's doubtful, considering all that we know now. Remember, 
Federalists in Congress were bitter towards Adams and blamed him for the party being ousted from power. In spite, they had tried to reject the convention of Mort Fontaine and keep John Marshall from assuming the post of Chief Justice. It was clear that what little sway Adams had previously enjoyed with Federalists in Congress was gone now. And if you've learned nothing else in the course of this series, you should know, dear listener, that Adams had little influence on Federalists in Congress, even in the best of times. Even if he wanted to help swing the vote to Jefferson, there was little chance that President Adams could do so. And indeed, if he had come out in support of Jefferson, it may have caused the high Federalists to dig in their heels further and do everything they could to keep him from becoming president as one more dig at Adams. Thus, Jefferson wrote to Virginia Governor James Monroe the next day that the impasse remained and shared with him that there was a proposal from the Democratic Republicans for, quote, a convention to reorganize the government and to amend it that was spurring fears in Federalist circles that, quote, they should lose some of the favorite morsels of the Constitution. He assured Monroe that, though numerous offers had come his way, quote, to obtain terms and promises from me, I have declared to them unequivocally that I would not receive the government on capitulation, that I would not go into it with my hands tied. As word spread up and down the eastern seaboard of the deadlock in the House and the various proposals floating about in Washington, Democratic Republicans in other states were starting to make plans in case Federalists sought to put their own candidate in as president. Governor Monroe set up a, quote, chain of expresses, i.e. express riders, to carry news of the latest developments between Washington and Richmond, no matter what hour, day or night. Meanwhile, he had a trusted militia officer go to do reconnaissance on the federal arsenal at New London, Virginia, and to recruit some local militiamen to keep up the surveillance and take action accordingly to ensure that the arms weren't removed from Virginia by Federalists in the federal government. Pennsylvania Governor Thomas McKean, meanwhile, kept the state legislature in session to take action should the House attempt to take the presidency from Jefferson. Beyond officials and state government, private militia companies were also a powder keg, ready to go off at the time. Partisans from both parties started preparing the companies, just in case. For all the talk of civil war that we've encountered thus far in our journey through presidential history, This is arguably the closest that the nation came to it up to this point. Meanwhile, back in the House of Representatives, as Saturday's vote had done nothing to resolve the crisis, they postponed the next vote until Monday, February 16th. When that day arrived, the 34th and 35th ballots were taken. Again, eight for Jefferson, six for Burr, and two state delegations tied. However, unlike in previous days, there was a glimmer of hope for an end to the drama. Bayard and Smith had met over the weekend, with Smith sharing with his Federalist colleague that he had been, quote, authorized by Jefferson to give assurances to the points that Bayard, along with Dayton and Parker, had been asking about. Smith would later say that he had given these assurances based on his conversations with Jefferson, quote, without Jefferson having the remotest idea of my object. Smith's biographer Frank Castle, while admitting that we may never know the truth of the matter as to how much or little Jefferson knew about Smith's purpose, reached the conclusion, quote, that Smith used his role as intermediary to mislead Baird purposely in order to bring a quick end to the election. However, Smith was not the only one who had been working on Baird. Following his infamous pamphlet, Alexander Hamilton found himself on the outs with many Federalists. He admitted to a fellow New Yorker, quote, that his influence with the federal party was wholly gone, that he could no longer be useful. Despite this, he knew that he had to try, for the idea of Burr ending up as president was much more horrific to him than a Jefferson presidency. As soon as the tie vote became known in December, Hamilton sent letters to anyone he could think of warning them about Burr, including then-Secretary of the Treasury Walcott, Speaker of the House Sedgwick, and Senator Governor Morris. Quote, the appointment of Burr as president would disgrace our country abroad, wrote Hamilton. Quote, no agreement with him could be relied upon. In another letter, he warned that, quote, he, i.e. Burr, is sanguine enough to hope everything, daring enough to attempt everything, wicked enough to scruple nothing. One of the recipients of Hamilton's barrage of letters was none other 
than Representative Bayard. Looking at his position, it's easy to see why Hamilton applied such pressure to him. Bayard was the sole representative from Delaware. Thus, he didn't have to convince anyone else to swing the vote of his state delegation. As noted by Ron Chernow, quote, For two months, Hamilton bombarded him, i.e. Bayard, with letters, spelling out Burr's flaws and heretical positions. Whether it was Hamilton's arguments or Smith's promises that ultimately won him over, Bayard on Monday the 16th announced in a Federalist caucus that, since it looked unlikely that Burr would be able to come out on top, he was willing to cast a vote for Jefferson and end the deadlock. Though a number in the caucus were outraged at this turn of events, ultimately, they did finally agree to concede the election to Jefferson. And on Tuesday, February 17th, Federalist congressmen from the Maryland and Vermont delegations, quote, retired from the House chamber in order to break the tie in those two delegations and give their votes to Jefferson. Meanwhile, Bayard and the South Carolina delegation cast blank ballots, which resulted in Jefferson winning on the 36th ballot with 10 votes, while Burr ended up with four. With the constitutional crisis finally resolved, all that remained was for Jefferson to prepare to take up the mantle of office and for Adams to wrap up his business and count down the days until his retirement. We'll pick up with Jefferson's preparations and the fallout from the crisis in a future episode. But for now, let's wrap up Mr. Adams's tenure in office. His last official dinner at the president's house was held for a delegation of Native Americans the evening of February 16th. Adams would write to the president-elect on February 20th, informing him that he was, quote, leaving in the stables of the United States seven horses and two carriages with harness that were the property of the United States, and that would certainly save you a considerable expense in furnishing his own. Finally, in one of his last acts, one which served more of a personal purpose than a public good, Adams issued orders to recall his son, John Quincy Adams, from his diplomatic post in Prussia. Jefferson, in a dinner with the Adamses in January, had, quote, inquired particularly about the possibility of retaining John Quincy as the U.S. minister in Berlin. But at this point, John Quincy had been abroad since President Washington had named him as minister to the Netherlands in 1794, and during that time had married a woman that his parents had not met and was about to become a father. Having lost one son recently, the president and his wife wanted their eldest son home. And John did not hesitate in using his remaining power to make that happen. Finally, before dawn on Inauguration Day, the outgoing president boarded a stage bound north and, with even less pomp and circumstance than had greeted him upon his arrival just over four months previously, John Adams left Washington, D.C. This departure was mocked by Adams's critics at the time and has received its share of ridicule in history since. But though many have attributed this move to a bitterness on Adams's part at being turned out of office, the evidence just doesn't bear up that conclusion. First, as we've already seen, the myth of the tempestuous emotional Adams seems to be the largest pillar holding this idea up. And for a man who was supposedly uncontrollable, we've seen evidence of him showing considerable patience that many others in the same situation would not have had. As noted by David McCullough, quote, Adams's departure was no sudden, dark-of-the-night impulse. It had been planned more than a week in advance, and we can find evidence of that in the correspondence of his private secretary, Billy Shaw. Both McCullough and James Roger Sharp point out that the 4 a.m. stagecoach was the only one that would get passengers to Baltimore by the end of the day. And as we've discussed previously, the journey between Washington and Baltimore at the time was not pleasant. A man of Adams's advanced years would not have relished the thought of spending the night roughing it on the side of the road when he could make it to Baltimore and spend the night in a bed at a hotel. Though Adams would never explain why he decided to leave that morning and not attend the inauguration. As noted by McCullough, quote, it seems he was never asked why either. With Mr. Adams safely on the road back to Quincy, it's time for us to close this chapter of our narrative. In the next episode, we'll look at Adams's post-presidency before we transition into the presidency of Thomas Jefferson. I'm still looking for questions about Adams for a Q&A episode, which I plan to launch sometime in the not-too-distant future. So if you have anything that you'd like to know about the second American president, send your questions on via email to Presidency's Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. 
or send it on to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Thanks again to Sean, Gary, and Sam for their assistance with the intro quotes. And be sure to check out the American History Podcast, the French History Podcast, and Pax Britannica, as they are all great podcasts that I personally listen to regularly. Links to each can be found on the Source Notes page for this episode at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com, or by searching anywhere that fine podcasts can be found. Finally, I thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take care, dear friends. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.